I'm going to get right into this because I, I know you don't want to miss a minute of the Super Bowl pregame show today. I think it starts in about a half an hour. The, the pregame goes longer than the game anymore. I don't know what the deal is there. But, we're, but as Brian said, we're in the midst of, a, I guess, a sermon series on gifts and discovering those gifts and applying them, uh, of those personal gifts that we, we all have. And I, I think that's a worthwhile exercise, but I think there are somewhat, it's somewhat limited and I say that because it's limited by our own human understanding and our own human perspective and uh, most of all our own human priorities, our own human motivations. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, uh, you know, I have a tendency to be a fairly selfish person or a self-centered person. And uh, I, I always want to think what I think and learn what I want to learn, and do what I want to do, and uh, so I don't always use those gifts, and I pick and choose the ones that uh, I'm comfortable with. Maybe some of, some of that applies to you, too, but as we read through the Bible, uh, and you, you look at the people that God uses for His purposes, I think you see a different pattern there evolves, and when God enters the picture in a person's life, he brings, he brings out things in us. He brings out gifts and talents that sometimes we don't even, we don't even know we have. And uh, he uses them then for his purposes, not ours. And I can testify that that's true in my own life. So today I want to look at one example, one such example in the Bible and that's a man by the name of Elijah. And you will see how this pattern and this process evolves in Elijah's life. And it, by the way, it's the same pattern that you will see throughout the Bible that God uses. And actually throughout history. It's not just biblical. It, it takes place today. So I would invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. Now, if you don't know where 1 Kings is, just go to 2 Kings and take a left. All right? Then you'll get there. But while you're turning there, I want to just give you some, uh, some background or some history, if you will, to uh, kind of give you a context for what we're about to read. So for over 100 years, the Israelites had, uh, had lived under three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and they were all great, famous men. None of them were without sin or failure, but they built Israel into a great nation. And after Solomon's death, there, there, a civil war took place and it broke out and the nation was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It was Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And from, from the time of that division on, for a period of over 200 years, the northern kingdom had 19 kings, or 19 monarchs, and all of them were wicked. All of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. Can you imagine that for 200 years? I was having breakfast with a friend this week, and he said it sounds a little bit like Washington, D.C. these days. 
So anyway, I told you I was going to quote you. But anyway, this went on for, over, for 200 years until the Assyrians invaded and they conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And down in the southern kingdom, in Judah, they had, for a period of over 300 years, they had 17 kings, and eight of them were good, and nine of them did what did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the Babylonians came in in 586 B.C. and conquered the southern kingdom. But during that period, in the north and in the south, because of the wickedness of all these rulers, God sent various prophets to call both the rulers and the people back to repentance. And being a prophet in those days was, well, it was not really an easy calling. Because most of the kings, they wanted nothing to do with God's messengers. And they either ignored them or they persecuted them. Or at the very worst, they put them to death. They put them to the sword. So it was a period that was characterized by bloodshed and assassinations and murder, intrigue, immorality, conspiracy, deception, and above all, idolatry, because they worshipped other gods. And by the way, it all came from the government, which is interesting. So if you stood up and you spoke for God in those days, your life expectancy was somewhat limited. So that brings us then to our story today, this morning, to our prophet. And before we get into chapter 17, I want to just set the stage for you a bit by reading to you the last few verses of chapter 16, because this gives us a little bit of context. I'll begin in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Notice that. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, just as a side note, Ahab's wife was a, a gal by the name of Jezebel, and she is mentioned by name. She is the only wife of all the kings that are ever mentioned by name. And Jezebel was the real ruler of the country. And one of the commentators that I read this week said that it was a petticoat government. In other words, she was the one that wore the pants of the family, and she was really the one that was behind the, the rulership of of. Uh, the country at the time, and she initiated Baal worship. And she introduced it to, to, to the people and inspired the people. In other words, it came again from the government. And Baal, in case you don't know, Baal was a god of rain and fertility and sun and land and the, and the crops. Uh, he was the god of the seasons. And Asherah 
Asherah was the mother of Baal. And as you read on through the story, Jezebel was out there and she was hunting down the prophets of God and killing them. And then a man by the name of Obadiah came along and he grabbed a hundred of them and stuck them in caves so that she, wouldn't, she couldn't kill them. So that's, uh, that's who we have here is, is Jezebel is the one that's really out to get everybody. Now, if I ask you, and I know a lot of you are Bible scholars out there, but if I ask you, um, who were the major prophets outside of Moses, who were the major prophets in the Old Testament? And you would say, well, Isaiah's got to be a big one, you know, because he's got a big book in there. It's 66 chapters long. Or there's Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah's got two books in the Old Testament. Or maybe it's Ezekiel. Well, you would be right. Those are major prophets in the Old Testament. But there is, but you know, those three guys, they're, they're barely even mentioned in the New Testament. They're quoted a lot, but they're not mentioned by name in the New Testament. But there is one prophet who is raised up numerous times as an example. And uh, he, he even... He makes an appearance in the New Testament. So I want to look at this guy. By the way, that's Elijah. We just sang a song about the days of Elijah. So I want to look at this guy this morning because he keeps resurfacing again and again in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as Elijah. And in Matthew 16, Many are calling Jesus the second coming of Elijah. And in Matthew 17, he even makes an appearance. He shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration. And again in 17, it, it, it says that Elijah must come, the, come again before the Messiah. And in Luke, it talks about the time, the widows in the time of Elijah. And in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, he's asked the question, are you Elijah who is to come? And in, uh, uh, in James, it talks about Elijah is described as a man of righteousness. So Elijah shows up all over the place in the New Testament. The other prophets don't. So in verse 1 of chapter 17, we are introduced for the first time to this man called Elijah. And he seems to come out of nowhere, virtually comes out of nowhere. Let me read to you verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall neither, neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. You know, so here we have, this is our introduction. This is the first time he's mentioned in the Bible. And if you look, if you read through there, all the other prophets that God calls in the Old Testament, he comes to them and he speaks to them. Or he gives them a vision and he tells them what, the, what he expects of them and what, what he expects them to do. But there's none of that with Elijah. We don't see any of that in life. The first we encounter him, he's standing before the king. 
It's like he comes out of nowhere. I mean, where, who is this guy? Where did he come from? What did, did, he's standing before the king and he says, you know, it's not going to rain until I say so. I mean, and by the way, that's a direct attack on the god Baal. It's not going to rain until I say so. And he, he just, there he is. Where did he come from? It's like he's standing in the White House at the Oval Office. And how did he get past security? How did he get, I mean, how did he, how did, did God tell him to go and speak to the king? We don't know. We're not told that. We, he just shows up, seemingly totally unannounced. And he confronts the king and he attacks his God. And he's introduced, this is interesting, he's not introduced as a prophet, he's introduced as a Tishbite. Um, you got that map? Can you put that map up there? He's introduced as a Tishbite. By the way, the word Tish, he comes from a village called Tishba. I don't know if you can see it there. There's a question mark by the name Tishba because they're really not sure where Tishba really was. But if you'll see on this map, you'll see where Elijah was born in Tishba. And then you'll see a little bit north of that, Elijah's fed by the ravens. We're going to get to that in a minute. And then if you go all the way up to the top, there's a village called Zarephath. And he ends up there in, in the story that we're going to be dealing with today. But I want to just see where he comes. But Tishba, the word Tishba simply means settlement. And when it, they describe as uh, Elijah as a Tishbite, which means he's a settler. That's the way he's introduced to us. He's introduced as a settler from a, sell from a little obscure, no-account village. And thus in chapter 17 begins the story of this guy called Elijah. And it is the first part of a process, I believe, where God forges him into the man he wants him to be. Because you'll see this all throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You'll see where you'll find the story after story where God trains people to be the man or the woman that he requires them to be, where he molds them and he shapes them and he trains them into, doing, into the people that he wants them to believe. And I, I firmly believe that he still does that today. He does it in you, and he does it in me, and he does it in all of his people. And the same principles are involved in this process, and I want to share a few of them with you. But let me just read then verse 1 through verse 7, because this, this is how the story starts. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded that the ravens provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook of Cher brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. 
And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. By the way, the word cherith, the, where the brook is, it, in, it, in the meaning of that word is a place of whittling, a place where things are cut down or cut off. So he's in a place of whittling. Now, Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary on Elijah, he likens this time in Elijah's life to the basic training or boot camp in the military. And those of you that have had that experience know what I'm talking about because boot camp is a time that is designed to break down the individual to, uh, to turn civilians into soldiers or into warriors, if you will. And it's a, it's a process that is designed to disorient and to confuse and to break down paradigms in people with demands and harassments and that, you know, that alter one's focus. Those of you that have been there know what I'm talking about. The way, the way that you think, the way that you react and respond, where you learn discipline and you learn sacrifice and perseverance, even in the face of hardship or difficulty or even threatening situations. That's what they do to you there. And this, according to Chuck Swindoll, is, that, is such a time for Elijah, where God is training him. And I believe he does that to people. I believe he does that to all of us. And by the way, it usually doesn't happen in church or in Sunday school. That's where we're taught. But we live it out in the real world, and that's where we're trained. And there's a big difference between teaching and training. I mean, it's one thing to watch Saving Private Ryan, but it's another thing to hit Omaha Beach for real. You know what I mean. And Elijah is a picture of how God takes an ordinary person and builds him into a man of eternal significance. He was cut off so God could cut him down and to... to get him back to basics, to strip away all that he had known and all that he had relied on, his intellect, his ingenuity, his self-reliance. God says, go away and be alone and hide yourself. And I can just imagine, you know, if it were me, I would say, what? You want me to go and hide myself? That No way, Lord, I'm a prophet. I'm a palace guy. I mean, I'm called to preach. I should, be, I should be influencing the king and the government and the people. I know what they're doing wrong. And I can do some good here. I mean, I read that little book about gifts. And that's my gift. What do you mean, go? And God said, no, Elijah. Go hide yourself in a secret, dark place. And be all alone. Nobody around. You know, I, at least from my perspective, I think one of the most difficult commands that God can give to any of us for us to hear and obey is simply this. Go off and be alone 
and do nothing. That's a difficult command for us to, to get our arms around because we're, you know, we're Christians, right? We, we should be out front. We should be doing something. We should be helping someone. We should be serving. Isn't that what we think? But God says, no, Elijah, I want you to go off and be alone and just chill. That's a difficult command for us. Well, of course, God provides for him there. Yeah. I mean, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? Even in those times, God provides for us. Well, it was, I, I read that and I got to thinking about it. And my mind goes crazy ways sometimes. But ravens are bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. Where do birds get bread? Think about that. Where, where do... They don't call a harvest bread company and, and, and get, a, get a nice hot loaf of bread and then pick it up and take it to Elijah. Where do they get bread? I mean, they, they're, they're scavengers. And I was thinking, well, maybe, the, you know, this, this bread is somebody threw away and they're taking it out of the garbage or whatever, and it's a, it's a day old and it's stale. And, they're, and, and where do they get meat? <laughs> College Hills Meat Shop? You know, every time I see birds around me, it's on the side of the road somewhere. So is this, is this what they're bringing? Well, my wife, I told this to my wife, and she, she, she set me straight on this. She said, well, in those days, they had open-air markets, so the birds could just fly down and pick up something. Of it. And then, then I got to thinking about the vendors and the merchants and all oh, these, these flocks of crows coming in and stealing all their stuff and they're trying to shoo them away. I don't know. But anyway, I think the long and the short is he's not getting a Biagi's pro, uh, what, what are those called? Pronto packs. He's not getting a Biagi's pronto packs for morning and evening. Anyway, that's, that's just beside the point. But I, yeah, I mean, th this is what, this is what sustain. Now, if that's not enough, it says in verse 7 that the brook dries up. I mean, this was his lifeline, folks. This, was, this is what sustained him. This is something he could count on. Being, and then this is, he's, by the way, he's where God called him to be. He's where God sent him. Now, remember, this is boot camp. And you, we can translate this into our lives today. I mean, there, there, there are times in our lives, you know, the, the bank account's full, business is good, the career is taking off, but then things begin to go south. Maybe you've experienced that or you know somebody that has it. You know, the career is taking off. Kids are great. At least they were at the beginning, but now they're growing up and they're starting to rebel a little bit or they're getting into trouble. My marriage, my marriage was once loving and vibrant. Now it seems to be mostly indifferent and loveless. As the brooks dried up. And you wonder, you know what happened? Why did it happen? Am I out of God's will somehow, or is God punishing me here? Has he forsaken me? Has he forgotten me? 
I don't know if any of you have ever had those thoughts when your brook dries up. Well, God hadn't forgotten Elijah, but Elijah had to wonder, didn't he? He had to wonder, what's the point in all of this? Why am I here? And here's another lesson that is good to learn. The reason, the reason the brook dried up was the result of Elijah's prayer. Think about that. That's why it, the brook dried up, because Elijah prayed it would. So that just tells you, you better be careful what you pray for sometimes. But there's, there's a principle here. Because there's a big difference between teaching and training. And Elijah is in training. And we think sometimes that a dry brook is a sign of God's displeasure. But in this case, a dry brook is a sign of God's pleasure. It is what God, it can be a sign of God working in our lives to reduce us, to mold us, and to fashion us into the instrument that he can use. So sometimes a dry brook is a sign of God's pleasure. So let's move on in the story now, and I'll pick it up in verse 8. And then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. And behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, uh, behold, a widow was, was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I might drink. And she was, as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in a bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that my, I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her and he and her her household ate for many days. And the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. So now God tells Elijah to go from Cherith, a place of whittling or cutting down, to Zarephath which means a place of smelting, a place of refining, the refining of metal, where you put metal into a furnace and you heat it up so that it turns into liquid and the impurities come to the top and can be skimmed off. So he goes from a place of water to a place of fire and a place of refinement. Names in the Bible are very important. So when you're reading through them, get yourself a good analytical concordance and look up the names, not only of places, but people, because they're very important. 
And the Bible is full of stories like this. I mean, you think about what Elijah's going through here. I mean, he stands before the king. He stands before the government, and he speaks truth to power. And he's not well received. And then he's taken out of circulation. He's all by himself. He's no longer the center of attention. He's not the, quote, prophet that we think of. He's all alone, and he's fully dependent upon a, what I would call a questionable source of sustenance. He's a man despised. Throughout the, he's got a price on his head. He's got a hundred mile walk through hostile territory. And if he's discovered, he's dead. Because the word is out. It's out throughout the country that all of our woes, folks, are due to this one man. Everything that we're, everything bad that we're experiencing is Elijah's fault. It's kind of like he's the Trump of his age, you know, the last four or five years. Trump was responsible for everything bad that happened in this country. Well, that's the way it was with Elijah. Elijah was the source of all their distress. This drought, that's his doing. This bad economy that we've got, it, it's his fault because we've got no crops and we're all hungry and we're in this recession and the stock market's crashing. And it's all because of this one man and life sucks because of him. I know, he's a Jewish man. Think about this, he's a Jewish. Now, in those days, the role of a Jewish man was to be the breadwinner, to be the provider for his family. But now, now he's in the care of a widow who is the lowest of the low in all of society. He's in the care of a widow. Think about, talk about humiliation. Talk about the stripping away of a man's pride. Worst of all, he has no idea how any of this is going to work out. He's in training, folks. But he obeys, and he goes, and he's obedient. And I want to I give you one more principle here, and this is very important. Private victories always come before public ones. You say that again. Private victories always come before the public ones. You know, what? let me be a little... What have I told you? that your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins was not secured when Jesus died on the cross. What if I told you that? You'd say, well, Pitzer, you're a, you're a heretic. That's heresy. But it wasn't, friends. Your salvation and mine, the forgiveness of your sins and mine was secured in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus said, yeah, I'll do it. That's when it really happened. That's when it was secured. You see, the pri it was the private victory in the Garden of Gethsemane that resulted in the public one later on. And that's the way it works with us, too. And Elijah has to get this settled. He has to get it settled in his private victory first. And so do we.
So Elijah's in the care of this widow. And it, I mean, it doesn't get any more desperate than this, folks. And she's a, by the way, she's a victim of Elijah's calling, just like everybody else. She's, she's out of food. And, and her death and the death of her son are staring her in the face. And when Elijah gets there, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a perfect stranger to her. He gets there and he has no idea that he is going to be the instrument of redemption for this woman or for her son or for the nation as a whole. He just does what God tells him to do. He just shows up. And there are times, my friends, and maybe you can identify with this, when we just show up. Well, we just go where God tells us to go. Now, we have no idea that we may be the instrument of redemption for someone else. All right, let's, let's finish the chapter. Beginning in verse, what is it, 17? Is that where we stopped? Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and put my son to death. And he said to her, give me your son. And then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought calamity to this widow with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your, in your mouth is truth. Now I know that you're a man of God boot camp. God was shaping, God was training, God was preparing Elijah for what is to come. And you stand before the government, stand before the king, stand before the prophets of Baal, and to become an instrument of God's redemption for the entire nation. But the private victory had to come first. And I want you to see the contrast between the way Elijah is described in verse 1 and then in verse 24. In verse 1, he was a nobody. He was just a settler from Tishba. But in verse 24, the woman declares, I know now that you are a man of God. See the contrast? See the progression? See the pattern? Basic training. And God works this in his people. If you don't believe me, just read your Bible. 
Because if you look, there are example after example after example where God molds people. He builds people. He tears them down and then builds them up into the people he wants them to be. Look at Abraham. Or look at Moses. Or Jacob. Or Joseph. Or Ruth. Or David. Or Peter. Or Paul. Or all of his disciples. This pattern runs throughout the entire scripture. Even his own mother, Mary. Even Jesus himself. The private victories have to come before the public ones. He whittles away. He refines us. And I believe he still does it today. I can tell you he's done it in me. And he'll do it in you. And I can testify to you that the times in my life when God's presence in God's training is is most present in are in times of trial, in times of struggle. Someone once said, and I love this quote, that the one place people encounter God most often is at the end of their rope. And I think that's true. Because friends, that's where the private victories happen. That's where they happen. You know, if I were totally honest with you and I would look at my prayer life over the, over the years, <laughs> I thought about this and I had to write some of them down because it would, go, it would go something like this. I would say, Lord, make me a godly man, but don't let it hurt. Or Lord, give me, give me faith and make me strong, but I don't want to have to suffer. Lord, I don't want anything to come between you and I, but bless me with enough money that I don't have to give up my creature comforts. <laughs> ah, Lord, I, I'll just follow you wherever, but I don't do very well in underdeveloped places with uneducated or unclean or even hostile people. Lord, my family's a mess, and I want to be your voice, but... I just don't like confrontation. And lastly, and probably the one I've prayed the most often, Lord, I want things to be different. But I don't want to have to change. I don't know if any of those resonate with you, but they seem to be present in my life a lot. So let me close with this principle, and I want you to get your arms around this. I want you to take this one home. The greatest thing God will ever do through you, he will first work in you. Let me say that again. The greatest thing that God will ever do through you, he'll first work in you. And that's the truth. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, our, our spirits are willing, but our flesh can be so weak at times. We understand your teaching. We understand what we've been taught. But many times we shy away from your training. We seek your deliverance, but very rarely do we accept your discipline. 
So I would just ask this this morning that you would work in us so that you can work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.